ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Angus Furley here. Coming up on the Country Hour, we'll be taking a look at some of those big jumps in livestock prices at recent markets and looking at just how quickly rain can turn things around. Staying on that theme, there has been a lot of talk about dry weather pretty much all of this year, and yet a lot of areas have experienced the opposite. You'll hear about how El Nino doesn't necessarily mean drought and how some commentary from the Bureau, the media and politicians has fuelled negativity in sectors like livestock markets. That and more coming up, and you can get in touch, of course, on the text line 0467... 842-722. First up, let's head to Rural News, and today that's brought to you by Jane McNaughton. Good afternoon, Angus. Last night, the government passed its nature repair bill after reaching a deal with the Greens. The new laws would allow miners, farmers and other landholders to cash in on nature-boosting practices. There are two big changes to the government's original bill – with the Greens having expedited the inclusion of a water trigger and taking offsets out of the scheme. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek says the laws will see philanthropic investment into environmental repair. It means that, for example, if you're a farmer and you've got a remnant rainforest on your land, you can get paid for keeping the feral species and the weeds out of it. If you're a traditional owner in central Australia, you're doing cultural burning and reintroducing threatened species uh, into your land, you can get paid to do that work. We are really excited about this as an opportunity to bring additional investment into into nature across Australia. It'll be monitored in the same way that uh, Australian carbon credits are. Have you noticed more new dairy brands popping up on supermarket shelves? If you flip them over, you may find that they've been imported from somewhere like New Zealand. Price-conscious Australians are consuming more imported dairy than ever. That's according to Dairy Australia's quarterly situation and outlook report released today. Analyst Eliza Redfern says that could mean a price drop for farmers next year as Australia begins to align with global markets. The reality is, is in today's market, we're, we're bringing in a whole, a whole variety of different products. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen that those imported volumes increasing, particularly over, over the last season coming in. And, you know, that, that price difference between Australian dairy products compared to the international products um, has, has had a part to play there too. Um, and so, you know, we see that a lot of those imported products tend to be more incorporated within that, you know, that ingredient, that food service space. Um, but we know that across many different food categories um, that the major retailers have been increasing that offering of imported products over several several years, um, of course. So um, there is that, you know, that increased presence and offering of imported products and, and, and it is putting pressure on, on Australian Australian dairy products as well. And we've seen that both, you know, on, on the global stage and also domestically, of course, within our own market. It's been more than three years since the federal court ruled in favour of the cattle industry's class action against the 2011 live export ban to Indonesia. And yet only the lead claimants, the Brett family, have received any compensation. 
The federal government has offered to pay the group $215 million, but that offer has been knocked back twice. The group has now made a counter-offer to the Commonwealth and wants to settle the case for $510 million plus costs and interest, which means a total settlement could be up to $900 million. David Connolly is president of the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association and explains why the government offer has been rejected. It's like offering $1,000 for a $50,000 horse. I mean, you just... It's, it's not in the, you're not in the running. Um, matter of fact, uh, it's frustrating and it's disrespectful. Some of the expenses that these families, are, and not just families that are, that are, that are grazing families, but trucking companies, uh, live export yards, uh, the whole gamut of the supply chain, some of the expenses that they've copped in this and has been ongoing because of the damage that the federal government did to our major customer, has been far away and in excess of that. And the Australian Alpaca Association is getting serious about trying to reduce the risk of disease spreading through livestock. The Emergency Animal Disease Response Agreement is between government and industry groups and aims to manage outbreaks such as foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease. But the Alpaca Association's Steve Rideout says a fair bit of work needs to be done before they can be considered a genuine partner in such an agreement. Biosecurity in the alpaca industry is not a, at a standard or knowledge standard of where we need to be from a member base. We need our breeders and members to have a consistent uh, biosecurity plan right across the board from farm to um, sales to export. The industry has gone past the hobby farm aspect a number of years ago and we're more into a semi-commercial uh, industry and we need to have broad cross-section of uh, traceability. Each farm needs to have a set standard of their own biosecurity and traceability. Other industries have that, the cattle, sheep and goats. For us, uh, lift our profile to a degree and have that professionalism uh, into our biosecurity plan the NLAS program uh, needs to be adopted. And Angus, that's today's Rural News. Thanks, Jane. Jane McNaughton there with Rural News. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Livestock markets are continuing to enjoy a stunning turnaround as widespread rain fuels confidence. Prices in most sectors have jumped up substantially in recent weeks, including a 64% rise in the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator and a 76% jump in the Restocker Lamb Indicator. Matt Tinkler, Elders Livestock Manager for Victoria and the Riverina, says markets have turned around sharply as demand has outstripped supply. Certainly some positive weather or favourable weather conditions in the north have had a, a positive impact on probably both sheep and cattle prices, in particular you know, we've seen the cattle market uh, right across the board from processing processing cattle through to restocker cattle, probably a, an increase over the last month or so of up to um, up to three hundred dollars a head. So that's uh, that's been quite significant. And, and then probably on the back of that, we've seen the trend follow through the through the mutton price, although that has maybe just stabilised um, and contracted a little bit in the last week or so. But um, from where it might have been a week or ten days ago, but and then good quality lambs are, are certainly selling very well as, as well. So it's um, yeah, it's all very positive. I guess we we were aware that it could possibly happen, given the kill space taking place and, and the season. Um, it was just a case of 
but as the old saying goes, the supply and demand, and um, I think the demand's probably outweighed the supply at the moment. And those restockers jumping right back in after being pretty absent for, for quite a while? Yeah, absolutely, and that's really on the back of Angus. That's on the back of a bit of confidence out the other end. So, you know, we've been right for the last six or eight, nearly 12 months. It's kill space has been at a premium, um, and it's been hard to get stock through that cycle, you know, or into feedlots or or whichever process. So we've certainly seen that that top-end change, and that's given the, the restocker on the back of the seasonal conditions a bit of confidence and uh, to step in. And, yeah, I guess everyone's, as we approach 2024, everyone's got a positive outlook. And all all sectors connected, aren't they? Because if you talk lambs, for example, as you said, big, big rises in lamb prices, give, giving people confidence to produce more lambs and, and hence look at uh, buying in more ewes? Yeah, correct. Look, right across the board, the, that breeding element and then from a restocking point of view, people to take on maybe some of those lighter lambs out of the areas that haven't been able to finish them uh, and produce them. And, you know, we're right at that time of year where we start to see harvest take place, so paddock space and room becomes available for people to take them on. We've certainly seen, you know, from a from a dollar a head point of view, we've certainly seen that a lot more attractive. You can get a lot more units compared to maybe what you were able to get 12 or 18 or two years ago. So all those factors sort of combine and, and create just that positivity and people to say, yeah, here's an opportunity and let's make a bit of money over the summer. And at, at the bottom of the market, or two or three months ago, we, we spoke around then, you talked about great opportunities to buy in, in cheap livestock. And I guess for, for those people who did, probably a, a, a bold call, but fortune uh, favouring the brave. Yeah, look, agriculture's made up of cycles, isn't it, Angus? And uh, and we certainly, you know, we continually see cycles. And those people that have lived and eaten and breathed it and positioned themselves can capitalise on those cycles. And that, that's really what we've been through. And that's, and that's what we've seen. We've seen it before and we'll see it again, no doubt. And Matt, something that I've I've heard a lot with with such negativity in in the market that that contributed to driving prices low was that it was negativity not necessarily because it was dry or that we, or that we were in drought, but that lots of people, whether it was uh, the bureau or politicians or the media, uh, talking about it getting dry and and that uh, fueling negativity that uh, contributed to that pushing down of prices. Yeah, I think so. Look, this, you know, if you, I'm no economist, but if you analyse the whole scenario, you know, we're, we're probably still working out where we've landed post-COVID rises. And then, you know, obviously there's been a lot of media conversation around El Nino and, and there's no doubt it's been very, very dry in the north through a lot of New South Wales for the year. So that certainly was the case there. But, you know, that widespread El Nino, and El Nino doesn't necessarily mean drought either. So, yeah, just just articulating and understanding that but it certainly has had an impact on the market as as does all perception and sentiment across all different financial markets but it certainly has had a big impact on our agricultural market in the last 12 months there's no doubt about that and if you look at some of those those graphs that represent the the, the indicators uh, they show a pretty sharp rise off those those September uh, lows. I think young cattle indicators gone from around three fifty cents to five seventy five. Trade lambs four eleven up to five fifty one today. Um, are those rises going to continue, or I suppose they have to level out at some stage? Yeah, I think they will. I think it's always 
always mindful that you you do get into a period you know we're, we're rolling into that christmas period and january does sort of slow down right across the board so you'd have to say that it'll it'll sort of flatten out a little bit but i think you know we've spoken about it before angus but there's additional amount of kill space coming on certainly in southern australia the dollar's very low you know there's a lot of positives for the industry and there's you know the, the big processes haven't gone and spent a lot of money on plants not to have them running so i think you know as we as we find our way through into 2024 i think you know there's some there's some really positive upside for those that can produce livestock for those people who who sold at the bottom of the market i mean if you have to sell you have to sell if if you don't have have feed but if if you did manage to hold on to your livestock and now you're looking to sell them uh it's it's the sums are going to work out pretty pretty well for you aren't they yeah absolutely look there's a there's a few different categories. There's people that certainly bought livestock at uh, earlier on in the year um, and then saw the market drop away. So they're just trying to recover ground that they might have lost. But then there's the people that have bred or bought in at that period that you said that are going to do very, very well. And as I mentioned before, you know, agriculture is about cycles and, and it's just working through those cycles and trying to manage your program not everyone can do that you know there's there's people that are in a breeding program and and do have to sell because the next crop are coming through you know and unfortunately they don't they don't get the advantage of what we're seeing now but hopefully they will on the next on the next turn that was matt tinkler elders livestock manager for victoria and the riverina on the text line, we heard we spoke yesterday on the Country Hour about that awful uh, electrocution fatality of a person driving a tally handler and the company he was working for fined over that, that electrocution fatality. Peter says regarding the tally handler fatality, you need to install heavy chain bolted to the chassis so at least one metre of chain is dragging on the ground. That provides path for contact with power line to earth and forces line to de-energise, bypass insulated tyres on the handler, make sure the chain doesn't get under the wheels. Thanks for that text, Peter. Uh, another text too, we've been talking a lot about COP28, that climate change conference on in Dubai. We've been talking a lot about that on the Country Hour. This person simply says, COP28 wants us to stop eating meat to save the planet. 0467 842 is the text line. Let's keep talking now about El Nino. And as I discussed there with Matt Tinkler, there has been widespread rain in recent times. And that's all come while we're officially in an El Nino weather pattern. And that typically produces, or more commonly produces, dry weather. So why has all this wet weather happened? Sarah Morris spoke with Andrew King, Senior Lecturer in Climate Science at the University of Melbourne, about the range of weather patterns that El Nino can produce. We had quite a dry start to spring, and it, it, some of you might remember that September and October was really quite warm and dry. Mm. But yeah, November was um, uh, surprisingly wet, uh, particularly in New South Wales and, and Queensland and parts of Victoria. Should we be surprised by this? Because El Nino is usually associated with dry weather. We haven't had that dry weather in the last month. Are we in a normal El Nino or a kind of rogue one? Well, El Ninos actually vary quite a lot in terms of what they mean for Australia. Um, El Nino has quite big effects on, on regional climates around the world because it shifts weather systems around a bit. But because we're not 
you know, right next to the, the central and eastern Pacific. When we have El Nino, it still means slightly different things for our climate. Typically, it's drier than normal and warmer than normal, but um, there's quite a lot of variety between El Ninos. Um, so, for example, there was a really big El Nino in the late 90s. There was quite a wet spring in, in that El Nino uh, summer as well. So it does vary a lot. Sometimes it's drier. It's more often drier than it is wetter. In this case, it's at least the last month it's been quite wet. Are we seeing a, a different pattern on our sea surface temperatures this time around than we've seen in other El Ninos? Normally when we have El Nino conditions, we have cooler sea surface temperatures around Australia, which uh, means there's kind of a bit less energy and a bit mes- less moisture available for rainfall to occur. This time around, it's been, it, that hasn't really been the case. Uh, sea surface temperatures are quite high around Australia. And they're particularly high to the southeast of Australia at the moment. And that's probably fed into uh, the particularly heavy rain that uh, the south coast of New South Wales had a week or two ago. Now. Yeah, exactly. Going forward, though, I, I, I know a lot of farmers and I think some are on one hand cranky. They're cranky that there was all this talk about El Nino. They went out, they sold their cattle, they got ready for drought. They're obviously all pretty scarred from the drought we had a couple of years ago. Then the rain came. Uh, and so now they're thinking, oh, this you know, was a storm in a teacup, so to speak. But I'm wondering if they might still have done the right thing because we've got a few months of summer yet to go. Could we see that the dry weather kick in? in the next couple of months? It's certainly possible. El Nino tends to have its biggest influence in spring. And um, in summer, it's we have so much rainfall that comes from storms that it's kind of hard to tell. It, like you just need a few storms in the right places and then you've got above average rainfall. In, in you know, much of Australia is so dry that that's, that would constitute like a, a wet, a wetter than average summer if you just have the, a few storms in the right place. So it's hard to tell. Yeah, it, it's possible that droughts may return. Whilst the rain has kind of dominated the last few weeks, we did have very dry conditions in September and October. And overall, spring was actually slightly drier than average. So the outlook was actually correct. It was just the rain really came at the at the end of spring. Got you. Um, and yeah, kind of brought up the, the average for spring close to the, the seasonal average. Do you think so, also the media's obsession with El Nino and La Nina um, plays into perhaps building up a, a feeling of something coming? And, and we had such shocking droughts in the, in the past couple of years. I guess we're all scared it was coming again. But do we perhaps need to be a little bit more measured with some of our reporting of the, the weather patterns that are upcoming? I think, I mean, El Nino and La Nina have a big influence on our climate. And yeah, we did have a big drought in the lead up to 2019 mm. when we had the fires. And you know, I think a lot of people were, were concerned we might see something like that again. Um, and then, of course, we had very wet conditions with the La Ninas. I, I do think, like, we always have variability in our weather and climate in Australia. We do have droughts and floods and it's not all tied to El Nino and La Nina, just El Nino kind of weights the odds towards having drier conditions. La Nina really weights the odds towards having wetter than average conditions. But there are, you know, other factors at play and you just need, because Australia is quite a dry continent, if you just have a few weather systems cross a region, you can have quite a lot of rain.
That was Andrew King, Senior Lecturer in Climate Science at the University of Melbourne, speaking with Sarah Morris. An interesting point, isn't it, about yeah the, the importance of language and a lot of people often conflating uh, the term El Nino with drought or dry conditions, saying that you get El Nino, it's going to be dry. Uh, but clearly not, not always the case. There is a correlation between El Nino and drought, uh, more likely than not, but yeah, certainly not necessarily the case. You can get in touch as well on the text line. Wally, I think, having a bit of a dig at the Bureau, which is a favourite pastime of many, I realise. Wally says, can you ask the Bureau which horse will win the 2024 Melbourne Cup? 0467 842 is the text line. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Let's stay on the weather now and talk about what's happening in the east of the state because dairy farmers in Gippsland's east could face weeks of soggy paddocks, which are still full of water after last week's heavy rain and more rain on the way, as we'll hear from the Bureau shortly. With sunny days above 25 degrees following those floods, pastures are in trouble. Chris Kane runs 320 cows at Marlow. That's tucked in between the Snowy River and the Broadrib River. He had thought he was in for an exceptional season, but now just a dozen hectares of his 1,000-hectare property remain above water. Uh, yeah, the snowy sort of rose about 5.5 metres or whatever and was looking like we were nearly going to get away with it down here, I suppose, without flooding too bad. Yeah, and then Saturday night, Sunday morning, uh, we had 80 mil here in Marlow and, um, yeah, just started filling in pretty much from the Broad Rib is, is where our floods mainly come from not from the Snowy River, and, um, yeah, it's been underwater since Friday, basically, now, yeah. And so how much of your place is underwater at the moment? Uh, what have we... We've probably got about 12 hectares out at the moment, yeah. Uh, and what are you running at your place? Uh, 320 milking cows. So where have, you, where have you fit your cows, then, on your 12 hectares that is dry at the moment? Uh, the Marlow Road's still shut at the moment, which has been good, so we've just been basically grazing the road and uh, feedlotting them out on, out on the road. So, How long can you sort of keep feeding them out on the Milo Road for, do you reckon? Uh, we're probably pretty lucky. We've got plenty of um, silage up our sleeve and oh, we, we actually got a load of vets just before this flood came So, and we've still got a bit of maize silage. So we're just basically feedlotting them at the moment. Yeah, and just up their grain as well. So as long as the road stays closed, they could stay here for a while, but um, that's not going to happen. So, For a rare occurrence where you want the roads to actually stay closed, hey? Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's probably, what is it, I think there's three or four farmers along the Marlow Road that have got their cows out at the moment because they, they've lost basically nearly all their land as well. Do you have any idea of, of how long it might take for the water to come down at your place? Have you experienced this kind of flooding before? Uh, yeah, we had it last year as well. I think that took a couple of weeks to disappear. I'm not sure with this one because it's it's sort of taken so long to cover everything. I don't know whether it'll it'll take a bit longer to to then leave. Yeah. From a from a dairy farming perspective, what does water in the paddocks potentially mean? Uh, with these warm days, it means it's going to kill all the grass. Yeah, and then leave probably a bit of silt behind. We've probably been lucky in that uh, regards. The, the Broadrib River is quite clean at the moment, so um, yeah, there won't be a hell of a lot of dirt from the looks of it left on the left on the grass that is still alive. Can you actually see um, any of your grass at the moment or is it fully underwater? No, nah, fully underwater, yeah. Yep. 
So maybe a couple yep. of days before you can get out there and sort of assess any damage from the sun that's followed the flood? Yeah, it'll be, yeah, probably by this time next week, um, yeah, should be able to yeah, see what the damage really is, I suppose, yeah. How's your season been going up to this point? Has this sort of been a bit of a hit? Um, for us, because we're on a, a lower farm, obviously uh, the dry season's probably suited us quite well. Um, we needed this rain that came, but just not that much. So, yeah, I think all up we had about 260-odd mil, I think, yeah. That's a lot of rain. Marlow dairy farmer Chris Kane speaking there with Fiona Broom. It's just about that the whole farm's gone underwater. Uh, a few texts coming through. Uh, someone asking how much rain for Marybar in the next few days. I'll put that to the Bureau shortly. Uh, Nackers says, Angus old mate, the Bureau would be a great place to work. Say anything and not be accountable for it. We better stop whacking the Bureau or they might not take my phone call. Uh, and... Uh, oh, Mel from Allendale going to the Ballarat, Ballarat Cup for his 84th birthday. What's the weather going to be for Saturday? Well, we'll check in shortly. And we did also get a call yesterday to the country. I ran out of time for it, but I think it was Malcolm at Wangaratta talking about all of this El Nino talk that's that's played out throughout this year and uh, possibly contributed to some negativity in various sectors, including the livestock sector. He was very critical, I think, of some comments by Murray Watt saying that we were heading for extreme drought, I think were the words. Uh, Malcolm saying that, uh, how would he know that's the case? And he didn't think those were very helpful comments when uh, people, there was that widespread negativity. 0467 842 is the text line. Let's head to news headlines now with Jean Bell. Good afternoon, Angus. A fire in central Victoria has burnt around 1.5 hectares and about 30 hay bales. The fire at Barumboot is now under control, but the Country Fire Authority says crews will be on scene for some time. The CFA has issued community information to alert people to smoke in the area. Firefighters were called at about a quarter to ten this morning and had the fire under control in about half an hour. The CFA believes the fire is machinery related. A man who killed a 73-year-old by throwing a sports drink at his head has been sentenced to eight years in prison. Troy Matthew Mascal was found guilty of manslaughter after he aggressively threw a bottle in Strathmerton in August 2021, striking John Burke on the side of the head. Mascal was sentenced this morning in the Supreme Court of Victoria and will be eligible for parole after serving five years in jail. The local government minister says the decision to suspend Strathbogie Shire Council is unfortunate but necessary. A suspension on all members of the misconduct played council is in place from today until the October elections. Minister for Local Government Melissa Horne says councillors failed to carry out their duties. The Destination Australia Scholarship Program has grown to 551 places for 2024, up from 480 successful applications in 2023. The scholarships, funded by $23 million of taxpayer funds, offer regional students $15,000 to support tertiary studies on regional campuses. Assistant Education Minister Anthony Chisholm says the program aims to ease skills shortages in key regional industries like nursing and teaching. For more news and stories, search for your local ABC station online. Thanks, Jean. Jean Bell there with news headlines. Let's go to the Bureau now. Plenty to talk about. Senior forecaster Stephanie Miles is on the line. Afternoon, Stephanie. Hi, Angus. How are you going? Pretty well, Stephanie. And all lies on the forecast. I'm in Western Victoria where everyone's flat out harvesting at the moment, trying to get as much grain off as they can before the rain. And 
We just heard there from that dairy farmer in East Gippsland, extremely wet. He doesn't want any more rain. Uh, we'll get to all of that shortly, but otherwise today I'm imagining a, a fairly fine day. Yep, absolutely right. Today across the state looking quite fine. There's, you know, you could argue there's not a cloud in the sky for a lot of it. There's a little bit of high cloud coming in the northwest, but yeah, look very fine and settled across today and then continuing as well tomorrow into Thursday, Angus, with some more settled conditions. Um, probably just to note that we've got some warmer temperatures, mostly in the northern parts, but no, you're absolutely right. Today and tomorrow are the more settled days. It's into Friday that we start to get some more unsettled conditions. So on Friday, it'll be quite a warm day. We do have a trough that's deepening over the southwestern parts of the state. Now, this trough will bring in some north to northeasterly winds across pretty much more than the northern, central and eastern parts and drive those temperatures up quite a little bit. Uh, and those northeasterlies will be quite unsettled too. So we will have some showers that will be mostly widespread across the state on Friday. However, they're more elevated showers. I don't think much of the rainfall will actually reach the ground. It's quite hot at the bottom. So evaporating before they really reach the ground. There will be a couple of mil in there here and there. But we do have some potential thunderstorms developing as well with those showers, mostly in the northern part. So this is all for Friday. And I just want to flag that too because with those warm temperatures and potentially some gustiness from those thunderstorms, we do have some uh, elevated fire danger ratings in the northwestern parts of the state. In particular, they've got up to extreme in the Mallee. So just be aware and be careful with those ones too, Angus. But from Friday afternoon, um, it's kind of when we start to get more so interested in the rainfall. So that south, the trough over the southwestern parts of the state will start to kind of combine with the tr uh, front that's moving over Tasmania into the evening and overnight Friday into Saturday morning, which will kind of drag that trough eastwards across the state. And in the wake of that trough, we do have some southwesterlies coming in. So a bit of a cooler change on Saturday. However, the rainfall will start to really increase overnight in those early hours of Saturday and through Saturday morning too. So we're still expecting, like we were saying yesterday, that diagonal line of really showers and rain that's kind of extending from the Wimmera down to about Bansdale across the state on Saturday, which will be where we'll see most of our showers and rain. And sorry. Stephanie, that line, uh, with rain on that line, south of that line, north of that line or both? Kind of bit of both. I think most of the northern parts of the um, state will see not all that much, but it'll be really just kind of on and south of that line from the top of the Wimmera down to Bansdale on the Saturday Angus. Okay, and what sorts of figures are we looking at at this stage? Very similar to what we were expecting yesterday. I mean, on Friday, we're perhaps a little bit less. Uh, we were only really expecting around one to five millimetres. There is a couple of spots which are up to about 10 millimetres on the Friday, but those higher amounts of the rainfall will come through overnight in the late hours and into early morning, so up to about 10 mils in the southwest. But anywhere else across the state on the Friday, anywhere between around one to, one to five millimetres. On the Saturday with that big band of the diagonal band, we're expecting anywhere between you know five to 20 millimetres in the northwest down to the southeast district, so that includes the Wimmera, the northern centre, Central, the central down to southwest Gippsland and a couple of the eastern Gippsland parts too. Uh, a little bit higher perhaps in those areas um, across maybe the Bass Coast and then also up to the Wimmera as well, up to about 20 to 30 millimetres. It has reduced just slightly in those rainfall figures. We were expecting a little bit more yesterday, but still anywhere up to about the 20 millimetres in any of those areas, Angus. And the far east of the state, Stephanie, as I mentioned, we heard just before from Chris Kane, who's a dairy farmer at, at Marlow near Orbost. Uh, he's had lots of rain, doesn't want any more. What's the forecast for that part of the world? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. It's uh, on the Friday, Saturday. It's most of the states concerned with the showers. I think from Saturday and into Sunday onwards, which will be a little bit of a period of uncertainty with what we see. I think for very far eastern Gippsland on Saturday, those showers will really kind of get there in the middle to afternoon period and kind of last into the evening on Saturday. However, on Sunday, it's interesting. We have a big low pressure system over in parts of Australia that starts to deepen once again. Uh, and whilst it starts to deepen over South Australia from Sunday onwards, it actually drives a lot of those southeasterly winds in the on and south of the ranges from Sunday onwards. So there's people out in East Gippsland, I keep an eye on the forecast because of the uncertainty, it might change a little bit, but I would expect that receive a little bit more shower activity from the Sunday onwards rather than the Friday and Saturday Angus. Okay, and a, a few questions on the text line, Stephanie. Uh, someone asking for a specific uh, rain forecast for Maryborough there in uh, Central Vic across those days later this week. Oh, okay. So Central Vic, is, is that what you said? Yeah, well, Maryborough was where they're from, but if you want to be more general, we could say <laughs> Central Vic. Uh, okay, so on the Friday, Central Vic, I would say anywhere between one to five millimetres, just in those elevated showers. If there's any thunderstorms that come through, there's a chance you might get a couple more mils. However, on the Saturday, I would expect anywhere between oh, the 10 to 20 millimetres. I think the higher amounts will probably be on the southern slopes of the ranges or maybe the very highest elevated parts. But perhaps uh, if that's the kind of Central Vic area, um, those amounts, Angus. And a texter at Karimba in Northern Vic says, glad to hear the rain is back, has backed off in Northern Vic. 100 mil here last week. The creek is running up on the bank. So, uh, yeah, not as much rain in the north, northern parts of the state, but it is still, it's still going to rain essentially right across the state. Absolutely, yeah. The Friday and Saturday are those days that we're expecting, but... Yeah, Friday seems that system kind of slowed down a little bit, so a little bit less that we're expecting on the Friday, but I would definitely be planning for some kind of rainfall over the weekend reaching most areas of the state. Okay, and we talked, I suppose, earlier in the week about a fair bit of uncertainty about this, this rain system, but is it firming up now or is it still still pretty open-ended as to what might actually play out? Yeah, I think the Saturday is quite certain. Uh, so those people just have a look at your forecasts for the Saturday. I don't think that's going to change all that much. From Sunday, Monday and Tuesday onwards, just with that low deepening over South Australia, I mean, I guess the rainfall that's really going to fall with that is going to be in bands that will just kind of wrap into the low, so in a clockwise direction over the state. So it's kind of going to depend on where those bands originate and kind of move on the Monday, Tuesday as to how many mils you'll get there. But yeah, a little bit more certain from Friday onwards, Angus. And I suppose as we saw with the last rain event, the big uh, totals came about, I think, when those bands just didn't seem to move and they just sat there and it rained and rained and rained and that's when people did get those those uh, 100 mil plus totals. Absolutely, yep, that was very much how it happened. Uh, on the Saturday, it's not moving quite much, so we could get those higher falls on the Saturday with what feels like it's not moving much, but like you we were saying, only between 20 and 30 mils in those highs, not the 100 mils that you're saying that we got the last couple of days. But yeah, on the Monday and Tuesday, it'll be really interesting to see what happens, uh, whether or not that low kind of starts to move, you know, east or west over South Australia and how that impacts us in Victoria. But we're just, yeah, still having a look at it at the moment. Okay, we'll get some more details tomorrow. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks so much, Angus. Have a good afternoon. You too. Stephanie Miles there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau, talking there about the rain that's coming up. It looks pretty substantial, particularly in those more southern parts of the state, but it looks like pretty much the entire state is going to get something. 
I know no one really wants it at the moment. It's not going to be very helpful for the likes of grain harvest, stone fruit harvest, those sodden dairy farmers in Gippsland, etc. But what will be will be. Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two is the text line. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. What will forestry compensation packages for native timber towns mean for the industry? The Victorian government says compensation will cover harvesting and processing equipment that is obviously no longer going to be required, while harvest contractors will be offered five-year forest and fire management services contracts. Gary Squires is a forestry consultant based in Orbost. He says with the end of native forest logging less than a month away, if it hasn't ceased already, contractors and businesses have been waiting for information so they can plan for their futures. There's a lot of paperwork to to read through, but it's something that the industry people have been uh, wanting for the last couple of months. So finally, we've got some announcements. It's just a matter of having a look at what the detail says, really. Is there enough detail for you at the moment to sort of make a judgment on that, or is there still some detail to come? Quick look at all the paperwork, and I'm talking 50 or 60 pages of stuff here to read through, but uh, I think it's probably uh, quite a reasonable package. But once again, you've got to get right down into the detail, and uh, um, it's not there, of course. never is. The government said businesses can choose whether they want to exit straight away from the industry or nominate a date up to the 30th of June 2024 and continue working until then. How many timber businesses are still operating um, out in East Gippsland? Do you think many of them will want to carry on down to the wire or are they planning on shutting up shop before then? I think there'll be some in in both categories. I think some will just want to exit the industry as soon as possible. There'll be others who want to go forward past June next year with these uh, five-year forestry maintenance contracts that they're talking about. Yeah, so one of the big concerns was that uh, Vic Forest's workers helped to manage the fuel load within the forests. So do you think that these five-year forest and fire management service agreements will go some way to sort of managing some of those fears? Uh, It will go some way. Uh, Once again, not sure how far it will go towards it because we don't know how many people will take up those packages. I mean, if every contractor took up those packages, it would be great. But then again, there would be a quite a high cost for government to put every contractor on a five-year contract. So it's just a bit unclear, and that's where I'm talking about. The detail is still a bit unclear. Just in general, amongst um, forestry workers, are they quite keen to remain in the industry and they're looking for other opportunities, or are people willing to move into other industries and potentially move out of the region? Uh, Once again, there's no one answer to that, Fiona. Um, Certainly the majority of people would would prefer to get a job in the local district, whether that be uh, in one of these uh, forestry maintenance packages they're talking about or somewhere else in the industry. I mean, people are committed to living in our district and that's what most people would prefer. But if they can't see a future here, then some of them have already started looking for jobs outside the region, which is certainly not good for our town. We're we're less than one month out from the end of Native Forest Lodge and it's the 1st of January 2024. Is there there anything, any sort of message that you want to communicate at this point? 
just get the detail out to people uh, as quickly as possible so people can contractors and their employees can make decisions about the rest of their life they've been on hold for so long it is so frustrating it's been so frustrating for people uh, if we can get some answers quickly and let people make some decisions that would be quite positive for people's mental health that was Gary Squires, forestry consultant in East Gippsland, speaking with Fiona Broom. And it would be great to hear from you if you are one of those affected people who, who previously has worked in the native forestry industry and now uh, doesn't have a future because that industry is being shut down. You can get in touch, 0467 842 And Scott sent in a text as well on our talk about uh, weather forecasting, talking El Nino and creating negativity when... It actually hasn't turned dry at this point. Scott says, Hi Angus, I think we need to get back to looking at weather deciles for our area, not just listening to the general weather forecast. The media loves talking the extremes. Can't argue with that, Scott. That That is the nature of the media. Thanks for your text. 0467 842 is the text line. We'll stay on the forestry industry now because a new study into the Murray region's softwoods industry and the socio-economic impacts of the black summer bushfires has raised concerns about the industry's future. The report shows the industry has bounced back strongly after finding ways to process burnt wood. However, Softwood Working Group Chief Executive Officer Carly Porteous says sourcing wood and recruiting a younger workforce are major challenges. Well, the report found that due to the collective and the collaborative efforts of the industry, and that, that, that really came down to working together and having great relationships, they salvaged um, the burnt wood for two years after the fires. So that's two years before the wood started to deteriorate where they couldn't use it. That's not been done anywhere in the world. Um, so the, the collective effort to research how to manage that wood, how to process that wood, um, how to recover that wood, um, is truly, uh, you know, needs to be applauded um, for the industry working in that region at that time. The the two years post the bushfire saw significant economic growth, which meant that essentially the industry harvested, hauled and processed two years worth of work in one year to ensure that we, we made use of this extraordinarily valuable resource. Uh, since then, um, you know, there will be some challenges ahead. There are some re- resource constraints coming at the industry in the area, but again, they're resilient. Uh, they do have the ability to think outside the box, and, and I'm sure that they'll continue to to support the communities that support them. Can you explain a bit further what you mean by resource constraints? Uh, well, during the fires, uh, there was an approximate loss of just under 50,000 hectares of softwood. Uh, so the resource, uh, again, and something the report actually tells us, is this particular re- region processes 90% of the wood that it grows, uh, which is extraordinarily for, extraordinary for Australia. So that means that all the resource that it's growing is essentially processed in the region. So when you do lose a portion of that resource, it does make it a little bit challenging. And it does mean that sometimes you need to go slightly further afield to find the resource that's required to maintain those really important regional jobs. 
Yeah, and so a big replant has been underway the last few years to try and recover some of those trees that were lost during the bushfires. Um, I understand it takes 30 years <laughs> for these trees to come into maturity and when they'll be ready to be processed. So I guess during that time while you wait for these new plantings to, to reach maturity, yeah, is there a chance that the industry will have to look further afield for for wood to process? Well, you're, you're spot on. It's about 28 to 30 years to, to develop a structural timber tree. During that period, there are um, what they call thinning activities that might go to other processes in the region. So it's been constantly managed and there is fibre output um, always going to, to employers in that region to make critical products like pulp and paper and um and manufactured uh, wood products. So we are we are very lucky in the region that there is flexibility around how the wood is, uh, or what age the wood is processed. Um, as far as moving further, further afield, we do have some of the largest processes of wood products in Australia in our region. So the demand for wood is exceptionally high. So yes, they will likely have to go a little further afield to, to, to maintain you know the level of uh, of demand that the customers in Australia currently have for wood which is very high um, I read in the report that it found that there was there's been a lot of difficulty in recruiting and retaining younger staff members in the industry absolutely and I don't think the um, the, the forestry or the wood processing industry is different to any other industry in a regional area at the moment um, there are challenges uh, not just uh, you know attracting young people but just retaining the workforce that we do have it's such a, a, a you know with low in, uh, low unemployment rates we have such a, an attractive market and it really is an employees market so um you know we're a great industry and the amazing thing is when people do come into our industry they they stay normally <laughs> um so you know we, we'd love to we'd love to be able to encourage as many young people in the industry uh, in the regional areas to come into our industry and, and that's really a job for us now to try and see how we can do that. That was Murray Region Forestry Hub Softwood Working Group Executive Officer Carly Porteous speaking with Annie Brown. Just had a message in from a listener about uh, media reporting or uh, speculation about El Nino saying that it, it has been damaging to the livestock uh, sector, that it's created a lot of negativity. People expected it to be dry and made decisions around that selling off livestock, hence uh, pushing the price down. And in actuality, it uh, clearly hasn't been dry, been quite the opposite in a lot of areas. Victoria particularly uh, has been quite wet uh, and more rain on the way, as we heard earlier from the Bureau. As well, on the text line, a message about the price of livestock now, because it is uh, trending upward. This person says there's a contract on the table for six, uh, $6 contracts for delivery in the first two weeks of February. They're wondering what the price will be by the time February rolls around if the contract now is already $6. 0467-842-722 is the text line. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Something a bit light-hearted before we head to markets. The inaugural TikTok Awards are being held in Sydney tonight, which, according to organisers, will bring together popular creators, the biggest viral trends and the most talked-about moments of 2023. And in among the crowd of trendsetters, 
Perhaps unexpectedly will be a grandad from the Kimberley armed with a stock whip. Matt Brand reports. Oh my God! Oh my God! Guys, one of the nominees for Creator of the Year at tonight's TikTok Awards is Tom Forrest, aka Outback Tom, whose videos of cooking up food with his granddad have reached millions of people worldwide. Hey, Granddad, can you start me a fire? Yeah, no worries. Rightio, so today we're making bean tacos. Mmm, unbelievable. Far out, that is absolutely delicious. Look, I'm going to be honest, I reckon a cafe in Sydney would want something like $29 for this. Here we go, just knocked it up here. Didn't even have to go to Sydney. Easy, How good is that? (laughs) Now, Grandad, a.k.a. Steve Forrest, prior to his life of being a TikTok sensation, he spent nearly 30 years working at the remote Wyndham Port in the Kimberley region of Western Australia and says he can't believe he's in Sydney today getting ready to head to the TikTok Awards. Well, well, I'm as nervous as all shit because I didn't realise but um, until I got here, but we have to do a, a, live, <laughs> a live show. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's about... I don't know, there's five or six creators that are doing live shows and we happen to be doing one. And what we're doing is a stock whip thing. You know, I've always had a stock whip. You know, I grew up on a farm, so I've always had a stock whip. So the grandkids could crack stock whips and that. But we're not really gun stock whip people and (laughs) we just happen to do a video out on the marsh where Tom cracked a prawn out of my hand and put a cigarette out and a few things like that. And um, Tom did four cracks, and within two days, that had two million views and a hundred heaps and heaps of comments. And um, so, what we're going to do tonight is probably because we're a light-hearted show. It doesn't matter if we stuff it up anyway. But um, we're just not stock whip people. We're, we can crack a whip, but um, we're doing a stock whip uh, show at the TikTok Awards tonight. There'd be a few other granddads there tonight. You know, it's that kind of crowd, is it? Um, I think there's very few granddads. <laughs> I might be the only granddad, but there's, there's going to be there's going to be thousands of people there. And I mean, I moved to Wyndham in 1972, and there's some reason I stayed in Wyndham, and I think it's because you get a lot of personal space and not too. But Sydney is just constant noise. You can't see the skyline for buildings. <laughs> And um, and the noise the noise is just going 24, 24 hours of the day, and uh, I'll be actually pleased to get back to Wyndham. I mean, I'm pleased to be in Sydney, but there's no way I'm going to move down here. Uh, getting to work with your grandson, travelling around, having fun, is that better than working at the Wyndham Port? Oh, it's it's different, but the Wyndham Port was good. You know, every industry had its own own character or own personality and the the one that really got me was the, the live cattle industry you know there was so many characters and people you know i mean not just quick ones that come to mind is you know david heath sterling buntine david o'hare um there's just loads and loads of people that were really interesting to work with very good at their job and uh, that entertained me no end, the live cattle industry. So just heaps and heaps of them that were really interesting characters, and I really enjoyed working with them. I'm not sure if all those people you just rattled off are on TikTok to cheer you on tonight, but wishing you and Tom all the best. Good luck, hey? 
All right, thanks very much. I'll just about guarantee none of them are on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> How good was that? Grandad, Acker, Steve Forrest speaking with Matt Brand. Let's head to markets now, see if they're in keeping with all that uh, positivity in the livestock job I've been talking about. Let's start at Leangatha Cattle with Brendan Fletcher. G'day. There were 700 more at 2070 with a near full field of buyers competing in the dearer market. Quality improved with all weights and grades represented. Trade cattle lifted 10 to 20 cents on most sales. Grown steers gained 20, bullocks 13. Manufacturing steers lifted 5 to 15 cents. Cows kicked 20 to 40 cents and more in places. Heavy bulls gained 10 to 15. Vealers sold from 228 to 310. Yearling trade steers 232 to 266. The heifer portion 220 to 266. Grown steers 255 to 268 bullocks 230 to 268 heavy Frisian steers 218 to 246 crossbreds 225 to 249 most light and medium weight cows 170 to 225 heavyweights 206 to 260 heavy bulls 180 to 235 this is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA thanks Brendan Horsham now with Graham Pimer Good afternoon everyone. Small drop in lamb numbers and a jump in sheep supply with 5,350 lambs and 5,050 sheep drawn for. Quality range from average to good with the usual buying group attending and operating in a solid market. Generally 5 to $10 it up on last week but with not as much weight penned. Medium and heavy trade lamb sold from 132 to 166. Heavyweight sold from 160 to 169. Restockers paid from 85 to 95, 12 to 69 for lighter weights. Young crossbreed used made to 128, and they paid $60 for Merino Weathers. Most restocker lambs were dearer. Larger sheep draw, similar returns on Merino sheep with heavy crossbreed selling to $10 at easier in places. Merino used made to 66, heavy crossbreed used to 68. The light trade lamb sold from 106 to 125 to average 560. Medium trade weights from 132 to 145, they've averaged 565. Export weights sold from 160 to 169, they've averaged 575. And heavy pen of Aussie white lambs made to $165. Medium weight sheep sold from 35 to 53, they've averaged 190. Hoggets made to 65, rams to 20. And Graham Pinewood Horsham from LA. Thanks, Graham. Lastly, Hamilton Lambs with Chris Agnew. Thanks, Angus. Agents yarded 60,000 lambs in Hamilton this week, an increase of 5,000. Despite the lift in numbers on offer, the quality on the top end was still very good, showing freshness and weight. However, there are more lambs showing dryness and lack of cover than the previous sale. A full field of processors were present, including both supermarket chains. Most were fully active, and there was very good restocker and feeder interest, with more of these lambs returning to the paddock. As a result, the sale was stronger over most categories, as the sale progressed to be 20 to $25 per head stronger and more so for the good trade lambs and heavy lambs over 26 kilos. Light lambs remained firm to slightly softer in places. New Seasons lambs sold to a top of 226, with most New Seasons lambs to the trade making between 630 and 720 cents. Like 12 to 16 kg lambs made between 38 and 119. The trade lambs 18 to 22, 95 to 170. 
75, 22 to 26 is 130 to 188 per head. This is an interim report as there's still two major agents to sell. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks, Chris, for that report on that massive yarding, 60,000 lambs and still prices improving. Well, we've run out of time again. That is it for today's Country Hour. Let's head to news now. The time is one o'clock.